Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 13th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, Nobel laureate Harold Varmus, and we'll talk to Jin Meng, co-discoverer of a major fossil, an early gliding mammal. Hello? Rocky the Flying Squirrel speaking. Must be the wrong mammal. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, Harold Varmus. He's currently the president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York City. From 1993 to 1999, he was director of the National Institutes of Health. In 1989, he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine for his studies of the genetic basis of cancer. Last week, Varmus took part in a forum put together by something called the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution, focusing on policies to advance science and technology. Other panel participants included former Treasury Secretaries Robert Rubin and Lawrence Summers. I met with Dr. Varmus Monday at his office at Sloan Kettering. Dr. Varmus, great to talk to you today. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Tell me about the Hamilton Project. What is it? How did you get involved with it and why? Well, I got involved with it because I received a telephone call from Bob Rubin asking me to participate in a in a forum which we held last week at uh, Johns Hopkins SAIS in, in Washington on the topic of uh, how we can ensure a better future for science and technology in this country. The Hamilton Project is a broader range uh, uh, initiative that uh, has been undertaken by Bob Rubin and several of his colleagues uh, who like many of us, are distressed by the many of the policies of the current administration that seem to be taking the country in the wrong direction. Um, the the uh, initiative is a, a attempt at uh, a kind of grassroots intellectual movement to come up with a series of ideas that will move us toward a more stable um, economic uh, uh, arena in which um, the middle class gets more benefits than it's getting now from from the wealth in this country, uh, and uh, also puts the country on a trajectory that uh, supports the good things the country has traditionally done. Uh, many of us are distressed by the lack of, of uh, adequate tax revenues to fund the good things the government does, uh, the uh, tendency of the current administration to uh, undermine science in a variety of ways that uh, range from the fiscal to the regulatory uh, and uh, the political, uh, and uh, the the, the, the session at the, um, uh, that was sponsored last week um, was a combination of, uh, of uh, people uh, providing uh, ideas for relatively small changes in the way we oversee science, for example, funding more National Science Foundation studentships uh, to uh, changes in the, the patent system. Uh, and then the five of us were asked to speak fairly broadly about, uh, about how we can improve um, science and technology in the country. So what were some of the things that you specifically discussed from your vantage point? Well, I was asked to talk about um, um, something that, that, that bothers me greatly, which is the, the difficulty that the country is having, despite its wealth, in providing adequate support for research and technology from federal funds. There's a history here that ought to be, it ought to be uh, um, just uh, touched on a moment. Um, since the Second World War, we, as a country, have depended increasingly on the federal government for the support of science. Uh, in the 17, in the 18th, 19th centuries and the first half of the 20th century, a lot of the support came from industry and philanthropy, and, and uh, we have uh, continued support from those sectors, but uh, for most of the basic science in this country, the federal government is, is the, uh, the hand that feeds us. Uh, unfortunately, the federal government works in a way that is not necessarily entirely consistent with the 
the best means to oversee science, even though the endeavor has been largely successful. America is certainly the most uh, important country worldwide in science and technology, and we'd like to maintain that position. But the way the government works, as we who've been in the government uh, have, have uh, come to understand, is by annual appropriations. But obviously, giving money to scientists for one year doesn't work. Science takes longer than that. Uh, most grants are awarded uh, for three to five years. Uh, scientists do projects that may take 10 or 15 years. And uh, therefore, there's an inherent instability in the, pro in the process. If you consider uh, the science that's supported um, by the government in, in two ways. One, um, the, 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 the fundamental science that just is directed at uh, learning new things about the natural world and those aspects of science that, uh, that have direct applications. Uh, what you see is that, uh, you know, organizations like NASA and the NIH, uh, have had quite substantial increases in funding, but they're both very subject to increases and decreases in a, in, a, in a fashion that's quite volatile. I'll come back to that in a moment. The other part, though, the, the basic science, especially the basic sciences um, in chemistry and physics, have been dramatically neglected over the last uh, couple of decades. This is uh, something which has been very well documented and, and, uh, and mourned uh, in a report from the National Academy of Sciences that was issued uh, by a committee headed by Norman Augustine uh, just a few months ago. And this this uh, report, which is called The Gathering Storm, lays out in some detail um, the concern that that um, that over the long haul, over the next uh, couple of decades, because of weaknesses in the way we fund basic physical sciences, the way we're training people to do physical sciences, um, the way we treat the way we treat science in elementary and high school programs, all of those factors, the way we pay teachers, the way we, um, the way we uh, use the patent system, the way we pro provide incentives in some of the physical sciences, um, we're losing our, our leadership gradually to other countries, especially in Europe and uh, a particular concern in Asia, where, where the, 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 the rise of, uh, of science, and particularly China, but certain, to a certain extent India and other parts of Southeast Asia, uh, are cause for long-term concern. In those sciences, in those science agencies like the NIH, uh, it can be said, honestly, that the NIH has had an increase in dollars over the last 10 years. The problem has been that uh, the increase came rapidly over five years. At the end of those five years, NIH was held totally flat without even inflationary increases. And the result is that, that, that uh, most of the money that the NIH receives each year, the vast majority, has been committed to grantees who got their awards at the time of growth, and now there's very little money left to pay the inflationary increases, to award new grants. Every year, there's a new generation of scientists. Uh, people who finish their postdoctoral training have taken new jobs, want grants, and when the success rates for those grant applications turn out to be 10%. Right, the cupboard is bare for them. Cupboard bare for them. Now, as a scientist, though, don't you think it's good that the rest of the world is getting up to speed so greatly at, at science. Yes, I, right. I, I, I do. I do applaud that, and I think competition is very healthy in science. Some people say, "Well, you, know, you should all be collaborating," but uh, and collaboration does go on, and but, that's healthy too. But, but the reality, the competition is terrific. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, actually, I spend a fair amount of my time trying to promote science in developing countries. I think it's crucial that we do that 
A, I think science makes the world a healthier and safer place. B, um, the, uh, the uh, problems that many developing countries have are only going to be solved by science and technology. And, and you know, one of the things that I've been troubled by as a science administrator when I was at the NIH is that it's very difficult to use the amount of American dollars that I'd like to use to address problems that are peculiar to or even shared with uh, developing countries. Um, and uh, the more we can do to promote science abroad, the better. Nevertheless, I want American talent to be exploited um, as productively as possible because we're in a position to advance everyone's cause very rapidly. Secondly, to an extent that most people forget, science and technology drive a tremendous amount of, uh, of, the em of employment in this country. Um, the NIH is spending uh, something in the order of $20 billion or more at universities and uh, research institutions where, you know, we're pay we're NIH is responsible for building buildings, for, uh, for uh, paying um, researchers who are also teachers, uh, for paying studentships and postdoctoral fellowships, for, um, for providing the money that uh, allows people to buy research supplies that are made by companies. Uh, it generates ideas that the pharmaceutical and biotech companies use to make new products. It's an incredible driver of our economy. Uh, economists have repeatedly shown that the investment by the federal government in science has a reward of uh, well over um, uh, a return of over 120 to 150 percent. So um, this is good for the nation. And uh, I sometimes feel that uh, uh, people perceive the complaints of scientists because uh, about funding as uh, narrowly partisan, when in fact, um, a very large segment of our population is dependent upon the largesse of government in supporting science. Don't we have a schizoid relationship to science in this country? It seems to me, uh, based on some of the letters we even get at Scientific American, that a lot of Americans have a, a, a real distrust of a lot of science. They, they love technology but they have a distrust of certain science. I mean, the obvious thing is evolution, but cosmologists are starting to feel it. Is that a, is that a factor in, in people's relationship with their legislators and then the funding? Right. I think it probably is, but the, the fact is that uh, science is still a very popular activity. Scientists are highly regarded by the country on the whole. Um, in the cases just this last uh, couple of elections where stem cell uh, politics, for example, has been played out in the electoral process. Uh, stem cell research has done better than the winning candidates for, for offices. And, and I take heart from that. I think that uh, uh, you know, we do have a serious problem in general education in the sciences, and that accounts for uh, the, uh, the reluctance of a, of a large segment of the population to accept the principles of evolution and think that there's still a debate about it, which there isn't. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a problem that we need to solve. But I still think there is an incredible constituency for science in this country. Whenever you ask people about medical research, I think they understand that it's not just the applied research. People have trouble sometimes articulating the question of what we should do in biomedical research by saying, I want the disease I'm interested to be, to be studied more carefully. But I think everybody understands that, you know, you can't, um, uh, completely understand autism until you understand how the brain works. You can't understand cancer until you understand uh, how cells um, uh, know whether to grow or to, or, or to um, be quiescent. So these these questions, I think, 
um, can be translated for uh, for the general audience. But we do have an audience that is less skilled in in in, in talking about science than than most of us would like. So, what are some of the nuts and bolts recommendations that are that have either been made or are going to come out of of this uh, think tank activity that might actually make a difference? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And, and uh, to, to date, we haven't been asked to develop policy papers out of that forum, um, but uh, a lot of things were put on the table. I think that there are, um, my, my own um, concern is that uh, we develop um, advocacy that is more um, uh, more strident, frankly, and, and, and broader based than we've had before. Scientists have recently, over the last 10 years or so, become more engaged in legislative process and uh, been more outspoken than they were uh, in the earlier phases of my career. But we need other people, not just the patient advocacy groups, which are out there, but, but, but the industries that depend on, on uh, research findings, uh, on, uh, the, on the sector that is concerned about education of, uh, in, in the sciences, uh, people who uh, simply are worried about the the economic future of the country, to be uh, looking at the Augustine Report from the National Academy, understanding some of the issues, um, and getting out there and, and speaking on behalf of uh, a long-range investment in science. Now, there are other ways to try to create incentives for um, for greater support of science by industry, uh, by, uh, by philanthropy, and those ought to be pursued too, because I think the record shows that we simply can't depend entirely on the federal government, especially in view of the kind of fluctuations that result from either the crescens in the national treasury that result from from uh, uh, reductions in tax revenues or um, the uh, the expenditure, expenditures sometimes unexpected like Katrina or uh, uh, unfortunate expenditures like the, the ones we're spending now in, in, in uh, Iraq. So we have a lot of pressure on a reduced um, federal treasury. And that's making life uh, particularly hard. And the, the, the one thing we shouldn't be abandoning um, uh, for the future of the country are investments in what this country has done so well and what has returned so much to the country, namely science and technology. Do you think the Democratic control of Congress is going to make an immediate difference in all this? Um, it may. Um, you know, I have to say that, and I want to say that 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 uh, science has benefited from many supporters in the Republican Party. Uh the, I think the negative impression that's resulted uh, um, over the last few years has been due to two factors. One is the religious right, which takes a fairly strong anti-science position on many issues and is more closely identified with the Republican and the Democratic Party. And secondly, the attitude of the Bush administration. The White House has been um, a very difficult administrator of, of federal science policy uh, with uh, you know, making political decisions about scientific matters. Uh, and uh, not being able to create a long-term plan for how science ought to be ought to be supported, I think it, it, I would be very reluctant to say that 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 white that the White House should write down and be allowed to, uh, in a sense, legislate a long-term funding plan for science. But I do think they ought to have a plan which Congress can respond to. There isn't one, and there's very poor understanding, in my view. Uh, in the White House, of, of of how the science agencies work and what they contribute to the country. Where would you hope things were? Let's say in uh, 
let's let another presidential administration go through. Let's go to 2012. Mm-hmm. When the 2012 election is going on, where would you hope things were as a result of whatever efforts we can make now? Well, I, I, in, in the, I think there are two big issues. One is training and, and better education in sciences. And, uh, and what I, one of the things that's difficult to respond to in your question is how we get to the educational process to be um, more equitable because so much of that goes on at the state level. But clearly, uh, better training of science teachers, better pay for teachers, uh, more investment in, 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 the, in school infrastructure, buildings, science equipment, um, that's a, a huge challenge for the nation in which we're clearly losing um, internationally. Just by every ranking, we do much less well than we should. The other issue is the, is the, is the financial support of science. And I think it is possible, uh, we've shown we can do this in the past, to uh, undertake a, um, to try to develop a position in both parties that, that supports um, modest but sustained growth of, uh, of science budgets. Uh, we haven't really changed uh, the proportion of our federal budget that goes to science over the last 30 or 40 years. And that's a mistake because science has gotten a lot more expensive. It has a lot more to offer. The opportunities have never been as, as great as they are now. We're increasingly technology-based, whether it's the, the way in which we're doing this podcast or the way in which we approach the treatment of cancer. And, uh, you know, we spend between $1 and $2 trillion in this country on health care, yet we invest less than 2% of what we spend on health care in health research. No industry would operate that way. I always think of science as the goose that lays the golden eggs, but you got to feed the goose. So I guess that's the bottom line of yeah, this. There's whole no alchemy discussion. here. That's right. <laughs> right. We can't turn lead into gold. <laughs> Great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank really you. Really appreciate it. For more on the Hamilton Project, go to www.hamiltonproject.org. There are links there that will take you to transcripts and videos of the forum that took place on December 5th. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a species of bat has a tongue that's longer than its entire body. Story two, Nobel Peace Prize winner Henry Kissinger is behind a new music video aimed at raising money for arthritis research. Story three, hair grows in neat orderly rows, not in a random orientation. And story four, even after surgery to remove lung cancers, more than a third of smokers resume the habit within a year. We'll be back with the answer, but first, a major fossil find from Mongolia. It's the cover story of the issue of the journal Nature that officially comes out Thursday the 14th. No, it's not a flying squirrel. In fact, it's another kind of gliding mammal that predates all other known flying mammals by some 70 million years. The lead researcher is Jin Mung, and I spoke to him last week at his office at the American Museum of Natural History here in New York. Dr. Mung, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you very much. A very exciting fossil find. Tell us about the find and about your role in finding it. In short, this is a first discovery of the Mesozoic mammal, and it's a gliding mammal. So that's the first record of a mammal that can fly in the air that we found in, within Mesozoic, the first record. And Mesozoic, how long ago are we talking? Well, Mesozoic, uh, for this particular uh, specimens, which uh, we think is at least 135 million years old, it could be older up to 165 million years old, depends on the uh, dating 
data because the dating is kind of controversial about the rocks that contain these specimens. But we're confident that at a minimum, it's 135 million years that, old. That's certainly that, uh, that's the case. Then we put in the article. We sort of try to be a little conservative、uh, to not to push the age too deep in the his- history. But I think 135 million years is old enough because.、Uh, The earlier, the previous record of flight, like a like a fossil band, and we know the early earliest record is about fifty fifty two million years old. The earliest bat yeah, is the earliest bat, yeah, fifty two. So this one just simply push that record、uh, until it's seventy、uh, million years uh, uh, deeper in the history. And what evidence do we have that this is indeed a mammal that could indeed fly? It was kind of confusing. We thought, well, maybe this is a a, a, a pterosaurus, a flying reptile, because、uh, um, we see this、uh, impression of this flying membrane. And、uh, look at that under microscope, you see all those、uh, very dense,、uh, very dense fur on the on the on the、uh, on the surface of the uh, of the uh, uh, impression. And then we figured,、uh, well, this got to be something that can fly. Then we look at the dentition. Usually, that's where we identify the mammal, because the mammalian teeth is very typical, very characteristic. So we look, we look at the teeth, but the teeth are so odd. We never see any Mesozoic mammal have a set of teeth like that. But if you compare with anything else, but this is still a, a, a mammal teeth. All those morphologies—the teeth, the skull, the postcranial, and the, of, co- of course, this flying membrane—show that this is a, a brand new mammal. So we we actually established a, a, a new mammalian order for this animal. From the time it was discovered until this publication, how long? How many years have gone by? Uh, one year. That's pretty fast. That's right. That's right. Because uh, uh, the specimens was found, I think, uh, um, uh, I believe. And at the end of last year, until I went back to Beijing, the specimens uh, was uh, brought to be, uh, to the Institute of、uh, Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing, and I, I went back there because I had、uh, the collaboration with them. I have been doing research with them all the time, so I went to one of the、uh, colleagues' office, and the specimens were was on his、uh, desk. And、uh, he said, that, "Well, look, we got a, some new specimens, and this is one of those.、So、look at what it is." And、uh, I, because we are in the middle of something, so I, I, I quickly look at the specimens. I didn't. I, I saw the teeth, the 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 skull and the teeth and the skeletons. I think it's something strange. And and the and at that time, I also see the impression of the flying membrane. But I didn't have a chance to look at it in detail, so I said, "Well, I will come back to look at it again." So I think the next day I asked them to bring the specimens to another office where they have those microscope set up. I look at the specimens under the microscope, and so I, I, I found that this impression was covered with the impression of this dense hair, which is a very typical mammalian character. You have、sure. this body hair, so. That、uh, at that point, I I I I concluded that you know this is there got to be a gliding or flying mammal at that time, but but still we feel it's kind of it's just so odd because you know the 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 record is so early, and it's seventy、uh, million years you 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 just couldn't believe that, 
So um, we are very cautious about that. So we called another person. He actually is our, one of our co-authors. He 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 is an expert on、uh, pterosaurs, and he has been working on pterosaurs from the same localities. And from that same localities, we have you know very small pterosaurs, like a like a pigeon sized. So we were wondering whether this is a pterosaur. But you know, you know, when we're looking at the 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 bone element, the teeth, everything, and the hair impression, of course, this this is a mammal, not anything else. But it's such an odd mammal; we've never seen it before. What is the significance of the designation of a new order? Well, in the first place, I think、uh, that. Antlius gave、uh, gives us a idea than、uh, how much we we don't know about the Mesozoic mammal, because a new order means that that's a major branch, a major clade or major group of mammal, which is quite different from others. Like you know, if you look at the living mammals, we have、uh, a dozen of、uh, orders like primates, like、uh, Rodentia,、uh, all those groups, but. Uh, uh, But、uh, usually, you don't recognize a new order in the practice of, of the study of、uh, of mammals because、right. it's not very easy to recognize a major group that is so different, different, so distinctive from other groups. Very interesting, Dr. Monk. Thanks、mm-hmm. very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. For more, go to www.amnh.org/science. And here he is, that master of misinformation, Mister Know-It-All. Thank you. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one: Speaking of flying mammals, one bat's tongue is longer than its body. Story two: Kissinger makes music video for arthritis funding. Story three: Hair grows in neat, orderly rows. And story four: More than a third of lung cancer surgery patients start smoking again within a year. Times up. Story one is true. The nectar bat Anora fistulata has a tongue half again as long as its body. That's according to research published in last week's issue of Nature. The tongue, which the bat stores in its rib cage, appears to be adapted to feed on a particular flower that has long tubes. Story four is true. Thirty-seven percent of 154 lung cancer surgery patients in a new study were smoking again within a year. The study appears in the journal Cancer Epidemiology, Biomarkers and Prevention. Most of the recidivist smokers were puffing again within two months. And story three is true. Hair grows in orderly rows. New research shows that in mice, a gene called Frizzled Six controls the follicle angle to line the hairs up. Could make for better furry insulation than a random orientation. Probably similar stuff goes on in us too. For more, see Nikhil Swaminathan's article "Why Hair Grows or Doesn't All in a Row" at our website www.siam.com. All of which means that story two about Henry Kissinger and a music video for arthritis research is, of course, totally bogus. However, this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, Mohammed Yunus, the creator of the Grameen Bank that gives out microloans, really has launched a music video aimed at raising money to build eye hospitals in Bangladesh. Yunus's Scientific American article on the Grameen Bank from November 1999 is available at our digital archive, www.siamdigital.com. 
Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. Write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles and science video news at the website, siam.com. And the daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.